Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. What contribution did a Scottish veterinarian make to reducing bruised bums in 1887? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is in chemistry, and uh, I think chemistry is the, the tie that binds the sciences together. If you have a feel for molecules and what they can and cannot do, I think you have an appreciation for what can and cannot happen um, in the world. This summer is my 40th year of being on CJD, and next week we're going to have a little bit of a special show. I'll reminisce about uh, how it all got started. I'll have a few clips from days gone by, and we'll have a special guest, uh, Terry Mosher Aislinn, to chat about some of our history here. So anyway, that is coming up uh, next week. And as you know, I always ask a question on... Uh, on the trivia show in the morning on, on Sunday, and it generally serves as a springboard for discussion this afternoon. And usually people get the answer very, very quickly because these days it's difficult to come up with questions that are somewhat fair and defy Googling. But this morning, we have a rather special situation because nobody came up with the answer. So I'm going to give you a bit of a chance here to come up with the answer to that as well. So let me just repeat the question. We're looking for a connection, and the connection is between Vincent van Gogh's famous painting, A Starry Night, and uh, you know you can see that in all kinds of calendars and on neckties and scarves. It is one of his most famous paintings. And we're looking for the connection between that and a dirty bomb a dirty bomb. So, of course, it means that you do have to know what a dirty bomb is, and uh, you do have to take a look at the painting and come up with some sort of uh, explanation. But I will give you a word of clue, given the fact that no one is able to come up with it this morning. Uh, antidote. Antidote is the clue that I'm giving you. So you want to find the link between a dirty bomb and Vincent van Gogh's uh, Starry Night. So in the meantime, while we wait for your cleverness to come up with an answer to that or to the other question that uh, uh, that I asked uh, about the Scottish veterinarian who managed to reduce the bruising of bums in 1887, who was that veterinarian and what did he invent? But in the meantime, I want to talk a little bit about gold. And uh, as a chemist, I have a special appreciation for this metal because after all, our history of chemistry is intertwined with that of alchemy and the age-old quest to convert base metals into gold. By the 19th century, it became obvious that this was not going to happen. Gold was an element and could not be made from other substances. If you wanted gold, you had to find it. Since it is an extremely unreactive element, it does occur in nature in its native or uncombined state. Uh, that's why you can actually find pieces of pure gold if you know where to look. And I found some. 
few years ago on a journey to Alaska. And uh, it's kind of pleasing these days to remember stuff like that, given the lack of travel opportunities to, <laughs> to now. And uh, this was, in fact, in, in the summer, just about this time of the year, took a trip to uh, Alaska. And I had looked forward to that visit because one of my favorite lectures deals with the chemistry and the history of gold. And on numerous occasions, I've described to students how Joey Junot, a French-Canadian prospector, discovered gold in Alaska in 1880 by panning in a stream near the little town that would eventually bear his name. Now I had the chance to stand beside that very stream and pan for gold myself. Funny how talking about something is so much easier than doing it. Uh, of course, I knew the basic concept behind panning. Uh, gold is usually embedded in quartz and is liberated when rapidly flowing water erodes the rocks. Being very dense, it sinks and mixes with the stones and silt the bottom of the stream. The idea then is to pan out some of this sludge, slowly swirl it with water, allowing the heavy gold particles to accumulate at the bottom while the lighter mud is poured off. Sounds kind of straightforward, but it took at least half an hour of swirling, pouring, and swearing until the first golden pieces began to glisten in the pan. I knew that eventually they would appear since we had been guaranteed to find gold. Truth be told, the pants we were given were already preloaded with dirt from some other location since the original Juno site had long since been uh, exhausted. Gold has always represented wealth and security. When the Israelites feared that Moses would not return from Mount Sinai, they found comfort in the building of the golden calf. The Egyptians, for their part, often buried pharaohs in golden caskets surrounded by gold artifacts to ensure prosperity in the next world but perhaps it is the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece which best epitomizes man's desire to go to the ends of the earth in search of gold. According to Greek mythology, Jason and the Argonauts braved adversity to bring the fleece to Greece from the kingdom of Colchis. The story probably was based on the fact that since antiquity, sheepskins have been used in Russian Georgia to filter gold from rivers. How did gold get into rivers in the first place? Again, according to legend, King Midas was granted a wish by the god Dionysus. He wished that everything he touched would turn to gold. Midas soon realized his folly as his water, food, and women began to glitter. He begged to be released from this curse and was told to go and bathe in a nearby river, which may explain why we still find gold in rivers. Or perhaps flowing rivers just erode away gold-bearing quartz rocks, leaving tiny pellets of the metal in riverbed. And it was those glistening pellets that attracted prospective prospectors from around the world to Alaska and later in 1896 to the Yukon, hoping to hit pay dirt. For most, the effort did not pan out. After sailing to Alaska on some rickety vessel, they landed in Skagway, hundreds of miles from the gold fields. They struggled over the famed Chilkoot Pass, battling ice and snow, to Lake Bennett, from where Dawson City and its gold fields were within reach by boats, which the prospectors, of course, had to build. Finally, when the men got to Dawson, they discovered that the streets were not paved with gold. In fact, there were no streets at all. But for those willing to work hard under unimaginably harsh conditions, there was gold in them dark hills. 
A few of the gold rushers accumulated incredible wealth, but for most who made the long, torturous inland trek, the experience turned out to be a very bitter one. Mine was not quite so bitter because, as I said, after uh, uh, about half an hour of panning, there were a few pieces of gold that appeared in my pan, and I still have them to remind me of that uh, great journey to Alaska and the gold fields. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check for traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I may have made a mistake. Uh, it seems that someone did answer the question on the trivia show. I, I guess I, I missed that. Anyway, let's go over it. Maybe Erwin uh, has an answer. Erwin? Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi. So I think it's Prussian blue. Yes, it is. Very good. Uh, pr Prussian blue is uh, a pigment, and uh, it was used by Van Gogh, and uh, there's a connection to uh, the dirty bomb, which I will now proceed to reveal. Okay? Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. All right. You know what? I think Goldfinger is the best of all the James Bond movies. You remember that wonderful scene when Bond is secured to a table table is made of pure gold, and Goldfinger activates a laser that starts to melt the metal and threatens to bisect 007? Do you expect me to talk? Bond asks. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Of course, Bond manages to escape and goes on to foil Goldfinger's scheme of exploding a dirty bomb in Fort Knox. The idea is to render the U.S.'s gold supply radioactive and unusable, thereby increasing the value of Goldfinger's own stock of gold. Well, this movie was made before global terrorism introduced the possibility of inflicting radioactive damage on a population with a device that combines radioactive material with conventional explosives, a so-called dirty bomb. So this is not a nuclear weapon. There's no nuclear reaction going on. There's no big blast. It's just a conventional bomb, but loaded within it is some radioactive uh, material. And the whole idea here is to contaminate an area and poison people radioactively. Well, that, of course, requires the acquisition of radioactive material, which is not that easy, but it is possible. There are a number of radioactive isotopes that are produced in nuclear reactors that have practical application. Cobalt-60, of course, is used in radiotherapy. Um, americium-241 is used in smoke detectors, and iridium-192 is used in industrial radiography to locate flaws in metal components. So there, there are many uses, industrially and medically, of radioactive uh, isotopes, and terrorists could conceivably get their hands on such uh, material. There's been a great deal of research aimed at finding antidotes in case radioactive materials are inhaled or ingested. One possibility that has emerged is the pigment known as Prussian blue, which is available as a drug under the name radiogardase. Encased in gelatin capsules, the blue powder would be swallowed in case of radioactive substance exposure. Chemically speaking, it's called ferric ferrocyanate, the chemical term for Prussian blue. 
and it has the ability of binding the radioactive metal ions that could be released by dirty bombs and then removes them from the body. Prussian blue has a fascinating history. It was actually the first synthetic pigment ever discovered, and it predates the first synthetic dye, which of course was mauve that I've spoken about many, many times. What's the difference? Dyes are colored soluble chemicals that are absorbed into the material to which they are applied, right? We use them on, on fabrics. Well, pigments consist of extremely fine insoluble ground up particles that coat a surface to which they are applied. So most paints are pigments. They're suspended in some sort of a vehicle. They can be oil or, or water uh, uh, suspensions. Like Perkins' famous accidental discovery of mauve, the discovery of Prussian blue was also serendipitous. In 1706, Johann Jakob Diesbach, a color merchant, needed help in producing a red dye from cochineal insects, and that had been known since, since antiquity, uh, that these little bugs, uh, the female, secretes a, a chemical that with proper processing can be used to make a red, uh, red dye. Anyway, uh, Diesbach had trouble doing this and he consulted Johann Konrad Dippel, a philosopher and theologian who had dabbled in alchemy. Dippel sought not only to turn base metals into gold, he also searched for the elixir of life, a potion that would enhance longevity. He experimented with the distillation of various animal parts, particularly bones, thinking that these held the secret of life. He came up with Dippel's oil by distilling his animal offal mixture over potash. And what an accurate taste and repulsive odor the concoction had. But that was enough to ensure success. Anything that tasted and smelled so bad had to be good for you. Dippel's fame spread, and his universal cure flourished for a hundred years. Herr Diesbach had some experience with making a red dye from cochineal by cooking the little bugs up with green vitriol and potash. But now he was having trouble finding potash. <clears throat> the stuff referred to as green vitriol was iron sulfate, while potash was the ash left behind when a mixture of wood residue and vegetable matter was boiled to dryness in a pot. It was mostly potassium carbonate. Dippel, of course, had plenty of potash. After all, it was a key ingredient in his magic remedy. But when Dippel's potash was mixed with Diesbach's vitriol, the results were absolutely startling. A beautiful blue color was formed. It was immediately christened Prussian blue because Dippel had been living in Prussia and quickly replaced the naturally occurring aquamarine in inks and paints. Aquamarine did provide a beautiful blue color, but it was very expensive. Not surprising, since it was derived from emeralds. Neither Dippel nor Diesbach understood the chemistry of their accidental discovery, but it was clear that it had something to do with the potash being contaminated with animal residue. Soon factories using Dippel and Diesbach's mixture sprung up all over Prussia and cracked out tons of the new pigment. Artists quickly took to it. The stunning blue color in Van Gogh's famous Starry Night was achieved with Prussian blue. The uniforms of the Prussian army also were colored with the pigment. And there's one final twist to this story, a really neat one. 
Dippo supposedly also carried out dissections, anatomical experiments, and he also experimented with transferring souls between cadavers with a funnel. In 1816, young Mary Shelley, traveling with her husband Percy Bysshe Shelley along the Rhine, is said to have visited the castle where Dippo had carried out his anatomical experiments. The name of that castle, Castle Frankenstein. Rest, as they say, is history. Whether or not young Mary Shelley actually visited there is, is somewhat up in the air. But one thing we do know for sure is that she had gone to a number of public demonstrations of what at that time was called galvanism after Luigi Galvani, uh, who had basically invented uh, uh, the battery, or at least the, the basis of it. And uh, experimenters would go around and, and uh, engage the public with these demonstrations whereby they, they would hook up a, a battery or a static electric generator uh, and uh, stimulate a frog uh, or the leg of a frog to do contractions. Sometimes they would even use human bodies and make them jerk around a little bit, dead bodies. And uh, this probably gave the idea to Mary Shelley uh, about uh, writing a book uh, about Frankenstein. But it's very possible that the name came from her visit to this castle along the Rhine where Johann Dippel had carried out his famous experiments at Castle Frankenstein. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check the news and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, let's talk a little COVID. Unfortunately, we can't escape it. Uh, antibody testing. It is a complex business uh, that I will try to simplify uh, for you. Whenever uh, the body is exposed to a virus or a bacterium, it uh, perceives it as a foreign intruder and the immune system goes into action and cells of the immune system will uh, secrete all kinds of chemicals, uh, some which are messengers that invite, they invite other members of the immune system to the site of injury. Some will crank out antibodies. These are special proteins that can recognize the invader, bind to it, and inactivate it. So the idea, uh, for example, behind the vaccine is to introduce into the body uh, an inactive form of the virus or, or the bacterium so that the body will recognize certain proteins in that inactive form. And next time when there is an active uh, one that enters the body, the antibodies will recognize it, bind to it, and, and neutralize it. That's basically it. But there are many different kinds of antibodies. There's the IgG, the IgA, the IgM antibodies. Some of these form very quickly uh, to, to try to... Um, carry out this invading organism right away. Some have a longer-term effect. So anyway, the idea is to test whether or not someone may have been exposed to this SARS-CoV uh, virus and how do they have antibodies uh, against it. The way that this is done is by taking a blood sample and uh, centrifuging it so that separates the blood cells from the uh, yellowish plasma, the aqueous part of, of the blood that floats on top um, after centrifuging. And that is tested because that's where antibodies would be. 
So the plasma is then combined with an antigen. The antigen is a part of a, a protein that is known to be present in a virus or in a bacterium. So when you combine the, the plasma with this, if there is binding, that is, if there are antibodies to which the antigen can bind, uh, then that can be detected. It's a very complex system. They use uh, fluorescent uh, uh, binders, and, and then the color can be measured in a machine. Anyway, that's way too complicated to, to really explain on, on the radio. But the whole idea is that by combining the blood plasma with a known antigen that is a known piece of the um, of the virus, if these two combine, that can be detected, and that means that there was some antibody present in the in, in the plasma. Now there are many different kinds of tests that are available. And unfortunately, not all of them are, are very good, although they are getting better because now there are more regulations in place about the tests that, that can be used. Of course, what is important to know about these tests is the selectivity and the specificity. Uh, the uh, specificity is the, the chance that you're going to get a false positive. And, of course, you want that chance to be very low. Selectivity is the chance that you're going to get a false negative. Now, how do we know these things? Well, of course, there are lots of blood samples that are kept in blood banks that date back to before the existence of SARS-CoV-2 virus. So they can be tested with these uh, uh, antibody tests. And, of course, if you get a positive, it has to be a false measure because this virus wasn't around when they collected those blood samples. So that's how you get a measure for false positives. What about false negatives? Well, there are many samples from people today who are known to have contracted the virus because of the so-called molecular test. That's the test where they put the swab up your nose and they test for pieces of RNA of, of the virus. And if, uh, if they find it, it means that, that there is infection. So if you take those samples and you, uh, and you test them, uh, then you can get uh, a measure of uh, false negatives because you know that the virus is there. Therefore, the test should be positive. But if you get some negative, you know it's a false negative. Well, these days with the, these so-called serological tests for, for antibodies, the specificity and the selectivity is very, very good, uh, 99 plus percent. The only problem then is what this test really tells you. What are we to take away? Because first of all, we don't know how long it actually takes to form these antibodies and how long they will last. So you may find that antibodies are, are, are present, uh, but it may be that if you were to test again four weeks later, they may not be there. Nobody really knows what is the longevity of these antibodies. Although there are indications now that they, they have more than a cursory time, that they do tend to, to last. But we still don't know whether or not they are really protective, whether or not people who have been previously infected can get reinfected. Uh, I, I think the betting these days is that probably not, uh, that the antibodies are, are protective. But the question is for, uh, for how long? And also it depends on when you take the sample. 
if you take it too early during an infection, uh, antibodies will not yet have formed. So you will uh, get a, a false negative. So there's still a lot of, of questions to be to be asked. And of course, what people are hoping for is that they can do one of these antibody tests and um, get a positive test, meaning that at some point in the past, they have been exposed to this virus and maybe they didn't have any symptoms. They Their, their immune system beat off the virus. Uh, and now since they have antibodies, uh, they may be protected. Well, that may be, except we don't know that for sure. So the question is, if you get a, a, a positive test for antibody, are you then going to relax and not be as careful with your um, hygiene and careful with your mask and careful with meeting people because you think that you are protected from further infection, which we just don't know. And it's also not quite clear uh, exactly which antibodies are being tested for and whether those are the so-called neutralizing antibodies that really are effective at destroying the, the virus. Now, these questions will eventually be answered as we do more and more testing, and we will see whether or not people who have tested positive, whether or not they do once again come down with infections sometime later on. Although I, I think probably there is protection for uh, for quite some time, but uh, more and more testing will have to be done in order to uh, to know that. And uh, also because of the the wide variety of tests that are available, some of which are better uh, than others, um, we really have a great deal of difficulty uh, interpreting the the results. So the uh, these. Uh, Antibody tests are, are not uh, at a stage where you know we, we can come to some definite conclusion about uh, people sort of getting a, a safety passport based upon this. That is that uh, if they have a positive test, then, then they're going to be protected and don't have to worry about uh, being reinfected. Uh, those are questions that, that are going to take some time to be answered. But in the meantime, of course, the testing has to continue because what we need is data. The more data we accumulate, the better the chance that we're going to be able to come to some conclusion about what the antibody tests uh, really mean. But in the meantime, I think we still have to be very careful with the, the hygiene and the, the wearing of masks. And I, I think that with the wearing of masks, I think we will know within a month just how effective this is because the rate of infection, in, as certainly here in Quebec, has been kind of constant. So uh, we will see whether or not within a month with this universal masking, if that infection rate goes down or not. Okay, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take another glance at traffic and we'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I'm still looking for an answer to my question about the Scottish veterinarian who made an invention preventing the bruising of rear ends of butts. Who was that? What did he invent? And let me give you another question. How can you play the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony by using four identical wine bottles? If you know that, give us a call at 790-0800. Let me go to Edward. Edward. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Joe. Thanks for taking my call. I'm worried about those flying insects, like mosquitoes and all. 
Could they be carrying the, the virus from an infected person? No, no. This is a respiratory virus. You don't get infected uh, through the blood from mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, uh-huh. of course, can transmit malaria, other diseases, but they will not transmit the uh, uh, COVID virus. But what about virus. the viruses on their bodies? You know, like they're flying around in front of you and you inhale or something like that? No, that is extremely, extremely unlikely. I mean, uh-huh. eat, eating, but- inhaling mosquitoes is not another way of... I would not worry about this. Uh, so. No, but inhaling uh, like bees who carry pollen and all that stuff, you know, uh, could it could it be on their bodies and uh, they'd be flying in front of you and uh, something like that? I would put that into the extremely, extremely unlikely category. Unfortunately, with this virus, you can never say anything impossible because we just don't know all facets, but that comes to as close as impossible as I can think of. So oh, okay. I wouldn't worry about that. Okay. okay. Thanks a lot. All right. You, okay. Let me uh, let me get back a little bit to to gold because there's I still have a couple of interesting things to tell you about that. Most of the world's gold today is mined in South Africa and Russia, and in the most widely used process, gold-bearing rock is crushed and then washed over copper plates, the surface of which is covered with mercury. And gold dissolves in mercury, as anyone who has been unfortunate enough to allow mercury to come into contact with their gold jewelry knows. And the resulting gold amalgam is scraped off and distilled. Uh, The mercury evaporates and the pure gold is left behind. About four tons of rock are needed to eventually yield one ounce of gold. Well, there are other ways of extracting it other than mercury. But unfortunately, the mercury is still used in many parts of of the world. And of course, this means mercury pollution is associated with gold production. Anyway, the pure metal is referred to as 24 carat, while 18 carat represents an alloy of 75% gold and 25% of some other metal. Uh, These metals can be nickel, copper, zinc, and then we have white gold. When silver is used, the product is the familiar yellow gold. The metal can even be given a reddish or a greenish tinge by the judicious use of silver, copper, and zinc. Thin layer of gold is highly reflective and can be used on windows to save on air conditioning costs. It is such an excellent conductor of electricity that it is used extensively in computer circuits. In fact, a new industry has recently arisen, that of recovering gold, from computer scrap. One ton of computer rubble can yield two pounds of gold. The greatest gold reserve, believe it or not, is in the world's oceans. The gold concentration there is very small, but because of the massive amount of water in the world's oceans, there is a lot of gold. The total dissolved gold is more than what has been extracted from all other sources throughout our history. Only problem is that the technology to extract it is... uh, just not pot- economically not possible. Gold is also the most malleable of all metals, and ingot the size of a matchbox can be beaten into a sheet one ten thousandth of a millimeter thick, large enough to cover a tennis court. Uh, knowing that, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised when, after my little gold planning adventure I told you about, I walked into a souvenir shop in Juneau and was greeted by a large display of little vials filled with flakes of real gold. Each one had far more than the paltry specks I had managed to scrape together. What did they cost? 99 cents each. Compare that with the, I think it was $39 US for a five-minute bus ride and half an hour of sifting mud. Uh, So there's still gold to be found in Juneau. 
you just have to mine it from tourists' uh, pockets. But nevertheless, it, it was certainly an interesting uh, experience. I tell you this little story because I was talking earlier about Goldfinger. And uh, uh, in the movie, of course, he was just in love with gold. So many references to, to, to gold. Uh, his first name was Auric Goldfinger. A-U-R-I-C, and A-U, of course, is the chemical symbol for, for gold. It comes from aurum, which was the Latin word for the dawn, because the color of the sky at dawn is a goldish uh, color. And um, Goldfinger, of course, collected uh, gold of, of all kinds, and uh, he was just infatuated with the beauty of, uh, of the metal. And uh, I think he was the greatest Bond villain. Uh, Kurt Proby was the the actor who played uh, Goldfinger, and uh, was uh, I, I just I, I thought that was just a great uh, great movie. And remember, one of the scenes was when uh, one of uh, a lady who had run afoul of uh, Goldfinger ended up being killed uh, by being painted with gold from head to foot. And the idea was that by gilding her so totally, uh, it prevented her body from breathing and she suffocated. Uh, no, this is not a real possibility, uh, although it is undoubtedly not a pleasant experience to be painted gold. But we do not breathe through our skin. We breathe through our mouth and through our nose. So you cannot suffocate someone by uh, paint, painting them from um, from um, head to foot. Uh, there, there, there was a very interesting story a few years ago in Germany when uh, a guy who had a fight with his girlfriend and wanted to really show her uh, that she had driven him to, to uh, kill himself. And I guess he had been a fan of Goldfinger and decided to do away with himself with paint, but he couldn't find any gold paint. So he found some blue paint and he painted himself blue from top to bottom I guess sending the message that that he was blue uh, about her, and uh, ended up in hospital, uh, not from suffocation or anything like that, but because he stayed quite healthy, but then couldn't get the paint off, and in hospital they had to use a solvent to try to get the paint off, and eventually they did. But the concern was about bathing him with various solvents in order to try to remove this uh, this paint. They were concerned about the toxicity of the of the solvent. But anyway, they got the blue paint off and eventually released him. But a couple of weeks later, uh, he ended up in the same hospital again, once more having had a fight with the girlfriend and uh, being covered head to toe in blue paint. Uh, this time, they managed to get the paint off, but didn't let him go home. Uh, they called the men in the little white coats and uh, transported him to uh, an institution. So uh, I guess he learned a lesson about uh, uh, painting himself and uh, the effects that uh, it had. Uh, I wish I could tell you to make the story complete with everything else that I talked about earlier today that he had used... Uh, Prussian blue in order to do that, but uh, I have no idea what kind of blue dye or blue pigment uh, that he had used. Anyway, that, that is it. Uh, we've had some little fun today with, uh, with Prussian blue and with Goldfinger, and we also learned something about antibodies, uh, hopefully, and uh, that's it. But we will be back with you same time, same station next week, and uh, we will have a little bit of an anniversary show 
to to uh, kind of uh, remember the 40 years that I've been uh, sitting here in front of this mic on, on CJD. We have a special guest, uh, Aislinn, and uh, we'll reminisce a little bit, and I will try to dig out some early tapes that I had from uh, way, way back. Anyway, that's it for today. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week, next Sunday, 3 o'clock. Join us for the Dr. Joe Show. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>